So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope, without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. For thousands of years, mankind has attempted to philosophize or create the optimal society filled with ideal people. Uh, We have the Plato's Republic, right? And many of you had to read that in high school or college. There was the communist experiment with the new Soviet man. There was Jonestown, supposedly dedicated to racial and social equality. And Fordlandia. I love this one. Henry Ford. Yes, that Henry Ford, the the car maker. He He attempted to establish a utopian city in the Brazilian rainforest. The king of cars decided that a person's diet should consist of brown rice, whole wheat bread, canned peaches, and oatmeal. (laughs) Along with meat, alcohol, tobacco, women, and soccer were forbidden in city limits. If you're looking for a road trip idea, you can visit the ruins of at least a dozen different failed utopias in the United States. Now, naturally, we wouldn't want to live in Jonestown or Fordlandia or the Soviet Union. Those experiments all failed miserably, often in bloodshed. But as Christians, we've been brought into a new society that began with bloodshed, planned and paid for by God himself. It's called the church. And when we cooperate with the Lord in his administration of it, This new society is able to achieve what has been impossible in every other human society, no matter how hard mankind has tried. In God's church, there is harmony and love and support and reconciliation and many other wonderful things. The church is a special creation, one where resistance and distance and hindrance are all overcome by the power and the work of God. It was no easy feat to dismantle the resistance that people naturally feel toward others or the distance between mankind and his creator and the hindrance of the unattainable demands of the law. But all of those things are dealt with in the church, not because we figured out any kind of magic formula, but because Christ has done it and won it for us. Of course, in the church, even in a local expression of the church like the one we're in right now, we don't function perfectly. Everything doesn't work exactly as it should because we are sinners. We sometimes short-circuit God's way and we do things in our own strength and our own schemes and our own understanding. 
And when we do, the result is always the same. The result is always disharmony, spiritual famine, and people being burdened by the church rather than blessed. And so let's take a look at what God wants and what this church is about, starting in verse 11. Paul says, so then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. So Paul's writing to these believers in Ephesus, and predominantly he's writing to the Gentile Christians there. We've talked about this before. There were some Jewish believers, but very few Jews in the city. And so mostly uh, Paul is writing to Gentile believers there. In the church, Jew and Gentile are united together. This is a hugely significant development. Uh, We live in a culture and a society and in a spot where you know, we, we don't really have a problem with Jews, right? But it's, it's hard to overstate how wide the divide between Jew and Gentiles has been historically, no matter where you look on planet Earth. These are groups that have always been alienated from each other. It's highlighted here. Paul says, you were called the uncircumcised. And that wasn't just a physiological description. We see that that was a a slur. We see King David using that term, for example, in the Old Testament. And that was the worst thing that you could be. But we're going to let this uncircumcised man talk like this? No, let's go take his head off, right? And that's what David did. Uh, It was a slur. Now, traditionally, this was obviously not part of the Old Testament, but traditionally in the culture, it was not lawful for a Jew to aid a Gentile woman in giving birth, for that would bring another heathen into the world. So that's a pretty wide gulf. Of course, Jews were no more loved by Gentiles than Gentiles were loved by Jews, and I'm speaking in cultural, historical terms here. History shows that of all peoples, Jews have been the most hated, the most hunted, the most mistreated, no matter where they go, no matter when or where they find themselves. There's an incredible resistance between these two people groups, historically speaking. If it were just a matter of physical circumcision, well, the problem could be easily solved, right? But it's more than that. And from the beginning, it wasn't just about the physical. Moses explained way back in Deuteronomy chapter 30 that, hey, listen, this is the sign of of our covenant with God given through Abraham, but real circumcision, the real work that God is trying to do is circumcision of the heart. And the only way to bring people together who have this kind of resistance against one another is by the transformative power of God changing their heart. There's no amount of, of, you know, sort of re-education or exposure to culture or things like that. All the things that Paul is talking about, as we've been seeing over these studies, it's all about a heart transformation. And so you, you can't bring historically com- uh, uh, antithetical cultures like Jew and Gentile together just through information or just through a mingling program. It has to be done at the heart level. Verse 12 says, at that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. Uh, And so Paul explains to them that the Jews were God's chosen people. And because of that, they were recipients of his special promises and his special revelation. The gospel, the good news of what God has done came to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. 
And, and to be a Gentile before the gospel went out meant that you were spiritually speaking a have not five times over in this verse. They were without Christ. He says, hey, listen, you're a Gentile out there. Before you were saved, remember, the whole opening of Ephesians is about the incredible work of God's salvation and all that it is about past, present, and future, how powerful it is, how amazing it is, how wonderful it is. And so we have to remember that they weren't reading these verses in isolation. They were reading the whole book all at once. So that's what he's been talking about. Uh, and, but he says, listen, when you were just a Gentile, before you were a Christian, you were without Christ. Now, because these opening passages of Ephesians are a battleground over what they call soteriology, meaning how does a person get saved? And we've talked about this before. Um, we are not Calvinistic in our doctrine here at Calvary. And so these are uh, passages where, where the opening of Ephesians is one of the spots where those who teach Calvinistic doctrine say, here, look, Ephesians 1 and 2 proves it. But you have a real problem here if, if you ascribe to that doctrine because how can you be without Christ if, if your doctrine teaches that you are in Christ from before the foundations of the earth? It's a problem. But here the Gentiles were without Christ. They had no Messiah, no deliverer. The Jews were always looking for their Messiah and their deliverer. Right now they missed him when he came because, uh, because they were... Um, not ready for him, not looking and not listening and, and refusing to turn from uh, the tradition that they had found themselves in, right? The Pharisees were unwilling to humble themselves and recognize Jesus as Messiah, but they had a Messiah they were looking forward to. The Gentiles had no deliverer. They were without God or without Christ. They were also excluded from citizenship and foreigners to the covenants, meaning they weren't on the guest list for admittance to the kingdom and the one kingdom that actually matters. Now, this would have been a blow to a patriotic Roman, right? Uh, because the average Roman Gentile uh, w was very proud of their Roman citizenship. They were, they were citizens of the greatest empire the world had ever known. And right here, Paul is, is revealing and reminding them that, yeah, that, didn't, that doesn't matter, does it? It doesn't matter if you're not a Christian. It doesn't matter at all if you're pinching incense to Caesar or if you're recognized as a great Roman citizen or have a title or anything like that. You're without citizenship and without uh, promises in the one kingdom that is actually eternal, the one kingdom that actually matters. Roman citizenship was meaningless if you don't have access to heaven. They were without hope. What a terrible statement. But it's true. If you're not a Christian, you are without hope. What hope do you have for the future? What hope do you have when you face difficulty or suffering or, or tragedy? Any power, any wealth, any position, any brilliance that, that a Gentile without Jesus had, it, it would just die with them, and then they would be forgotten. But finally, Paul says there, you were without God. So you're without all of these things. Now, wait just a minute, a, a pagan Gentile might say. We Gentiles, we worship all kinds of gods. How dare you say we're without gods? In fact, the Gentiles accuse the Jews and the Christians of being atheos. That's the word Paul is using here, without God. They said, no, 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 you guys are atheos because you don't worship enough gods. You only worship one God, and we've never heard of him, and so... You know, we're the ones that have all of these gods, but Gentile gods were fake. 
They weren't real. They were counterfeit. They were made in the image of man. They were ridiculous. They didn't speak. They didn't act. They didn't do anything. And so a Gentile was helpless, hopeless, and heavenless because you cannot come to the Father except through Jesus Christ. The Bible's very clear on that. You know, Paul would say here, listen, you know, he's talking about the uniting of Jew and Gentile and things like that. But he's, he, in the New Testament, we see these windows into this old heathen pagan Gentile culture, and we kind of snicker at some of the things that they do. But the truth is, Paul looks at, at all human culture, whether it's modern or archaic, whether it's barbarous or, or cosmopolitan, and he says, listen, all of this is helpless and hopeless and heavenless uh, because as the New Testament points out, you can't go to heaven but through Jesus Christ. There's one way. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Paul said at the very start of this book, every spiritual blessing comes in Christ, only in Christ. And so the Gentiles were in big trouble, and we've talked about this before. Here he says, hey, do you realize how bad it was before you were a Christian? You thought you were doing the following things, but really you were dead in trespasses and sins, being uh, enslaved to your sin, enslaved to the devil. And so he's, uh, he's continuing that thought a little bit here. And then finally, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So there are the Gentiles lost at sea, spiritually speaking. They had no wisdom to navigate themselves in the direction of heaven. And even if they somehow had that wisdom, which they didn't, they had no strength to swim there, no strength to close the gap between them and God. In that state of helplessness, hopelessness, heavenlessness, what happened? Well, the God of love went looking for them. He mounted the rescue. He went out and said, there are lost sheep who I love and I'm going to go after them. They ran away from me. In in these cases, they were actually at war with me, but I'm going to mount a, a rescue operation so that I can draw them in and pull them into my family and, and save those who are willing to exercise faith. And that's how it takes place. Salvation is by grace, as we've seen in previous weeks, but through faith. As Paul speaks to believing Gentiles, he reminds them that this is all God's initiative. It's all God's grace. It's all God's tender love. He brought them near by the blood of Christ. We can't comprehend how costly this work was. In the 1970s, one of those failed utopias in the United States, uh, or actually this one wasn't in the United States, it was elsewhere. In the 1970s, there was this Las Vegas real estate tycoon named Michael Oliver, And he raised over $100 million in the 70s. That's probably like, I don't know, a billion trillion dollars now. But he raised $100 million 1970s dollars to build a libertarian utopia on a reef between the islands of Fiji and Tonga. It was called the Republic of Minerva. They minted their own currency, put up a flag, and a few months later, it was all over. uh, Because the king of Tonga said, yeah, you you can't do that. That's our reef. (laughs) information that would have been helpful yesterday or before I raised $100 million, right? But you can go there now. The sea has reclaimed the things that they have built. There's some sand there, but that's it. The plan failed. All the money that they raised is gone, right? $100 million seems like a huge price to pay for utopia, especially when it doesn't work. That's nothing in comparison to what was paid for you, what was paid for me. There is nothing in the universe 
that comes close to being worth as much as a single drop of our Savior's blood, and he poured it all out. Poured it all out so that you could have the opportunity to be saved. Maybe there's somebody here that is not a Christian. You've never been born again. Jesus Christ poured out his blood, the most costly thing in all the cosmos, in all the universe, so that you could have the opportunity to hear the gospel and to understand that he's willing to be your substitute, willing to stand in your place, willing to take your sin upon himself, pay the debt that you owe, and then give you his righteousness so that you could be saved. And all you have to do is by faith believe that in your heart it, that, 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 that Jesus is who he says he is and that God raised him from the dead. If you believe in your heart these things and confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. The most costly thing that could ever be paid was paid for you and for me. And this is an important piece of the puzzle. You are not brought near to God by the teachings of Christ. It's the blood of Christ. There have always been unbelievers and philosophers who want to apply the the moral teachings of Jesus while rejecting the ideas of atonement, crucifixion, those sorts of things. Uh, They think that will solve the world's problems. And if we all just live according to the Sermon on the Mount or the golden rule, that that's enough to fix everything. Thomas Jefferson, he famously put together a manuscript called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. It's often uh, referred to as the Jeffersonian Bible. Right? Notice it's, it's the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth, not Jesus, the Son of God, because Jefferson rejected that idea. In his manuscript, he took the parts of the New Testament he approved of and removed all the miracles, removed the resurrection, removed the second coming, removed heaven, removed hell. But he was convinced that if we separated Christianity from what he called, quote, the rags that enveloped it, Wow, and he's referring to those things I just listed, like the resurrection. He was convinced that that would lead to the ideal man and therefore the ideal society, one in which you wouldn't actually need a government to govern over people because people would govern themselves. But we are not brought near to God by the teachings of Jesus. We're brought near by the blood of Jesus. And without the blood, there's a real problem. It's his precious blood that brings us into the new covenant. It is the blood that cleanses us of sin. It is only by his blood that we can enter into the sanctuary of heaven. These are all things the New Testament says. Without his blood, his words cannot help you. Without the blood, we cannot know him or be near him or dwell with him. And by the way, Thomas, if without the resurrection, we are of all men most pitiable because none of it's true. Jesus was a madman, a liar. And so this is important stuff. Jesus' blood is a miracle cure. In Romans 5, it justifies us. In Ephesians 1, it redeems us. In Revelation 1, it liberates us. In Hebrews 13, it sanctifies us. And here, it brings us into God's forever embrace, brought near by the blood. We never want to discount the fact that Jesus Christ really died on the cross. He really poured out his blood because it is by his blood that all of these things are made possible. Verse 14 says, For he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. Hold there. Salvation is not just about reconciling God to man. That's the most important thing. But then reconciling men to each other. Being a Christian means being connected to others, whether they're Jew or Gentile, slave or free, rich or poor, weak or strong. 
And we'll see next time that, that the Lord brings certain living stones together to be connected according to his purposes, right? But Jesus tore down all of those walls that naturally divide human beings from one another. Those things that naturally separate us, uh, background and, and heritage and status and, and socioeconomic stuff, the Lord tears all of those things down, uh, all of the things that create hostility between people in the natural mind, and the Lord says, and now I'm going to unite you together so we can grow together. In the Jewish temple, there was a physical wall that kept Gentiles in their courtyard. They were not allowed to approach any closer. If they did, it would cost them their lives. But Christ comes along and says, okay, that's all gone. This idea that, well, you know, the the women are in this courtyard, the Gentiles are in this courtyard, and the the Jewish men are in this courtyard, and and that's as far as anybody can go, and everybody's going to stay separate. That is all gone. Uh, the barriers between uh, men are torn down and the barrier between man and God are torn down. Remember, when Christ died, the veil of the temple was also torn from top to bottom. So no more walls, no more curtains, no more resistance between people, no more distance between man and God. We now have open access together. And the Lord says, and now I, I purposely bring you together to be a body, my body on the earth. And we'll talk about this more in this book, but the New Testament talks about this. And so there's this trend, especially in the wake of COVID, but there's been for many years this trend that, well, I'm just a Christian unto myself. I am the church. And whether I actually connect with other believers, that doesn't matter because I am the church and I am wherever I... And we understand, yeah, you are a representative and an ambassador for Christ no matter where you are. And it's not like you're going to lose your salvation if you don't attend church, but... Christianity is about being connected to actual people that the Lord says, I am connecting you to actual other living stones, and that means real people that I've drawn to be together, and they're from all sorts of different backgrounds and all sorts of different places and all sorts of different levels of status and all these different things, and that's the point. We bring them all together so that we can grow together and so that the Lord can be glorified and so that we can accomplish greater work together than we could individually. That's the whole point. And so the Lord says, I've torn down all of those things, open access. Now, like I said, we don't experience this perfectly. We're not going to pretend like we accomplish this exactly the way that we should in the power of God. Uh, We are imperfect people and we're going to be imperfect people until we are brought into glory and into the other side of eternity where we will be made uh, right in every way. But it is sad. Christians find ways to put the barriers back up that the Lord has torn down. And he tore them down on purpose. And he wants us to know that they're torn down. And yet, we find that Christians in general, churches sometimes, put barriers back up. Barriers between people. Barriers between God and man. You know, for example, churches sometimes make it kind of hard for people to come through the doors, right? You have to look a certain way. You have to sign on a dotted line before you're allowed to get really plugged in and and involved. That's a barrier. And churches sometimes put up barriers between God and men. They, They push God further into the distance and say, oh, well, God isn't near you. You kind of have to do this, that, or the other thing. You have to follow this liturgy. Many years ago, is the, you know, maybe you guys remember there was a craze for a while about prayer labyrinths. You, know, you can't just pray. You have to, 
you know, if you really want to soak in prayer, whatever that means, you have to go through a prayer labyrinth and be guided and all these sorts of things. That's a barrier between God and man. Or, or in other subtle ways, or not so subtle ways, you know, there are church traditions that say, well, yeah, you go to God through a priest. That's a barrier between God and man. In a more subtle way, in evangelical culture, sometimes you have this attitude where it's, well, you just kind of have to believe everything this celebrity preacher says or does and, and support everything about it and make sure you always ingest all of their content because that's really how you hear from God. That's a barrier between God and man. Uh, and so, or churches will say, you know, really, if you're going to be spiritual, you have to give a certain amount of money. Or, that's a barrier between God and man. And listen, God has cleared all of these barriers away. He says, the church is a place of unity and open access and equal filling of the Spirit. He's not a respecter of persons in that regard. William Barclay writes, Christ and no other has solved the problem of our relationships with God and man. When we trust the Lord and submit to his way of thinking, he really is able to give us the peace Paul is talking about. You know, Jesus was really good at bringing diverse groups together. You have Simon the Zealot living and working side by side with Matthew, the tax collector. You know, before they were followers of Jesus, that, Matthew the tax collector was the kind of person Simon the Zealot was going to murder. And now they're brothers working together and following the Lord. You have the church at Antioch in the book of Acts. You've got Jews and Gentiles, people from all kinds of different nations and all kinds of different jobs and socioeconomic statuses, all cooperating together peacefully in beautiful harmony. The church in Ephesus, you've got uh, Lydia, the seller of purple. She's rolling. The church is meeting in her house. You've got people who are slaves coming to church. And Lydia's not turning her nose up at them. They're ministering together. They're growing together. This is what the church is meant to be. Verse 14 ends, In his flesh he made of no effect the law, consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. So in Christ we're made a new creation. It's not that Gentiles are made Jews and therefore now you're in, right? This was a big fight in the early church where there were a group of, of Jews who said, well, the Gentiles have to become Jews first. That's, that's what they're supposed to do. And there was this big, big issue that they had to work through. And there were people that would dog Paul's ministry uh, at wherever he went. They would follow up and say, hey, Paul told you that you're a Christian, but you're not a Christian. You have to become a Jew first. And people are all blown out by it. And the Lord is saying like, no, 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 no. It's not that I'm telling the Gentiles to become Jews. I'm making a new thing. Uh, This is a a new creation. It's not that we're an amalgam like brass where you have copper and zinc and if you mix them together, it's brass, but you can, through a process, separate them apart back to copper and zinc. Uh, One of the old-timey church father guys, Chrysostom, he explained it this way. It's not that Christ has brought one up to the level of the other, but that he has produced a greater as if one should melt down one statue of silver and another of lead and the two together come out as gold, right? It's impossible, but that's what we're talking about. Yeah, he comes out as gold. You came in as a disgusting, leaden, (laughs) Gentile pagan and the Jews went in as silver, right? And now you come out as gold and they don't separate out into their component parts. And the result of when the Lord brings us together in the church is peace. The term there doesn't just mean the absence of conflict or the opposite of war. It's a term that means safety, tranquility, harmony, rest, fulfillment, completeness, wholeness. 
This is not what we labor to attain in the church. It is what Christ has already done for us, right? He says that he, he has made a new man from the two resulting in peace. There it is. And so our part is to follow and cooperate and the result is peace as our salvation works out in us and through us. The Lord also makes the law of Moses inoperative in our lives. This is a big deal. I, for one, am very thankful for it. The law of Moses is of no effect in your Christian life. But wait, does that mean that none of the restrictions or morality in the Old Testament system matters anymore? No, that's not what the New Testament teaches. After all, Paul said in Romans 3, we uphold the law. Okay, so what's the deal with the law? In this dispensation of grace, the Mosaic law serves as a tool to show a sinner that he's a sinner, and it also reveals Jesus as the Messiah. He's the one who fulfilled the law perfectly, but we no longer relate to God personally or corporately through the law, but through Christ. That doesn't mean there are no commands or moral regulations in place for Christians. The New Testament is full of commands. In fact, all 10 commandments are reiterated in the New Testament except the command to keep the Sabbath. So there are still things that we Christians must do. There are still commands and, 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 and boundaries that God has given us, and we have to keep those things. But the rituals and regulations found in the Mosaic law no longer govern our behavior, period. So don't let anyone put any part of the Mosaic law back on you. It is nullified. It is of no effect. In reality, the law was a hindrance that separated God from man and men from each other because the point is you can't keep the law. That's the point. The point reveals that, no, you can't keep the law. You need a savior who can keep the law and will do it for you. And then you can be hidden in him so that when God looks at you and you're a lawbreaker, he sees his perfect sinless son who did fulfill the law and thereby you receive his righteousness. So don't let people put the law back on you. Now that hindrance has been overcome because Christ fulfilled the law and he calls us not to rituals, but to a simple biblical love for one another, right? We read in the Bible, the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. Verse 16 says, he did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death this reconciliation, this, this God making us into a new creation, it means that we are no longer to find our identity in Adam, no longer to find our identity in our nationality or in our human heritage, but our identity is in Christ, our Savior. It's not wrong to be enthusiastic about your country or your heritage, but we do want to keep a biblical perspective. Sadly, our culture has totally perverted the idea of identity, hasn't it, right? Identity is about things that I do. Uh, Identity is about behavior or politics or possessions, but that's not true of Christians. Your identity is supposed to be found in Jesus Christ. Verse 17 says, he came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. If you're a prisoner of war, Peace is the only thing that matters, right? That's the most important thing. What do you think the folks in Ukraine would rather have right now, tonight? Cheaper gas prices, a free acre of land, a promotion at work, or peace? Which one do you think they want? I think that we all know what they actually want. 
And, and, and Paul says, listen, Christ Jesus is your peace. He came to give you peace, peace with God, peace with others. In this verse, Paul is referencing Isaiah 57, 19, where we read this, God, the Lord says, peace, peace to the one who is far or near, and I will heal him. This has always been God's desire. It's not some new scheme he worked out when Israel failed to make the cut. You know, when Israel goes into uh, exile in Babylon or when, uh, you know, Israel fails to recognize their Messiah, God's not up in heaven saying, well, that didn't work. We better figure something else out. No, this has always been God's desire. And the great thing is that greater distance made no difference to Christ. It doesn't matter how far a person seems to be from salvation, the Lord can reach them. You could be the farthest pagan Gentile scattered away from Israel. And the Lord's like, I can reach you. I'm here to preach peace to those far and those near. And again, this would be a countercultural statement. This would be a bold thing for Paul to say because the empire made a big deal about the Pax Romana. And Paul said, yeah, that doesn't matter. The Pax Romana, that's not a thing. Uh, you know, that's a pretend. That's a counterfeit. It's the Lord's peace that matters. It's the Lord's peace that we trust in. It's the Lord's peace that we rely on and lean upon. Verse 18, for through him we, have both, uh, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So we have this new creation, the church, comprised of Jews and Gentiles living in peace and reconciliation with one another and with God in friendship and nearness and harmony. What is the bond that keeps us all together and gives us access to the Father? It's the Holy Spirit. He brings us into the courts of the king. He brings us into the sanctuary of heaven. He brings us before the throne. He gives us free and unrestricted access to God himself. But we're not just there to observe. We're invited to participate in the sanctuary before the throne. Well, what do I bring? Well, how can I participate in these incredible hallowed places? Well, we're told that as the spirit takes us in, we can bring our prayers we can bring our offerings. We can bring other people with us. We can bring our cares and cast them down at the feet of God himself, knowing he cares for us. Say, hey, Lord, I've, I've come into your presence with songs of thanksgiving. I've also come with a wheelbarrow full of cares. And I'm casting them down at your throne because I know you care for me. And the Lord says, yeah, that is absolutely right. I've gone to some uh, great lengths and incredible expense so that you could walk right into the sanctuary of heaven and, and interact with me in a loving way, in a trustful way, uh, in a way that brings harmony to my relationship with you and your relationship with others. So God has created this unique, otherwise impossible arrangement called the church. In God's power, it accomplishes what humanity has always wanted, but has never been able to attain. It unifies people, it ends hostilities, it builds and grows and spreads peace and harmony. It gives us all this access and we don't need a special clearance to get the access. You don't have to pay a certain amount in order to be qualified to see the big man. Those are all human ways of thinking. We have this access now. We have all of these things provided because God has accomplished it for us now. On this side of eternity, it doesn't happen perfectly, but that's because we're imperfect. It's not because God's design is insufficient. Meanwhile, the Lord is continually reshaping us to be more and more like him so that we can more and more experience his peace and harmony and power uh, as we interact with others around us. The danger is 
that we can fall back into our old human ways. We can drift back into resistance against other people, drift back into distance from God, drift back into the hindrances of legalism. Those are all things that Christ has torn down by his blood. And so instead of putting ourselves back into those shackles of those old human attitudes and opinions and prejudices, we're called to live in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, be unified in the Spirit, follow the Lord forward as he leads us into all truth on level ground, giving us rest and peace and access to everything we need to experience this impossible new creation that he has bought for us.